Hello and welcome to House of Fire and Blood, the podcast where we ask, what if George R. R. Martin's Fire and Blood were told more like HBO's show House of the Dragon? Hello and welcome to House of Fire and Blood. My name is Caroline. I'm here with Gretchen. Hey, everyone. And we are continuing our analysis of Fire and Blood today. We're doing the second chapter in the book, Reign of the Dragon, where we talk all about how great Aegon conquered, and definitely it was all conquered when he was coronated, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, completely yeah Aeg- Aegon the Conqueror definitely conquered all of the Seven Kingdoms, um, and it was very peaceful, and he was very peaceful and good king. Exactly. Good. And the additional 10 years of fighting is... It's, it's, it's fine. It's Don't worry okay. About it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's good. It's good. <laughs> also, most of it is Dorn. I just, all like, of it's Dorn. Yeah. Pretty much all of it is Dorn. I love that, like, this chapter is like the wars of Aegon the Conqueror. And I'm like, you mean Aegon trying to take over Dorn? Right, exactly. And it's, it's, I think you did the calculation, right? It's like the chapter is 12 pages long and nine of them are about Dorn. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, nine of them are about Dorn. Those cowards, those Dornish cowards in their Dornish sands. Yeah, how dare they? Mm. How dare they not face Aegon um, in a field of battle and be burned like stalks of wheat? Exactly. Why wouldn't they do that? That's so weird. <laughs> Such cowardice. It's just... <laughs> oh, Traitorous oh, so be- cowards. Before we jump into this chapter, I did. I was thinking about our last episode, and one of the questions we were asking, which was, why did Aegon invade, Aegon quote-unquote invade, mm-hmm. when he did? And I th- I think looking at the timeline is kind of interesting, because timing-wise, the the one lord of Westeros that kind of asked him to get involved and, like, take some land, and then shortly thereafter, per what we're told in the text, the invasion began. Mm-hmm. I think that lends more evidence to the idea that this was a political decision versus a prophetic decision. Yes. Because was... What, did he just also conveniently have a dream about prophecy at that time? And that's yeah. when he, you know what I mean? Like, that's awfully convenient if that's the situation. If that's the situation, it would be the same kind of prophetic dream that, like, the High Septon had when he was like, I don't know, should we yield to Aegon the Conqueror? Let me fast for seven days and pray to the gods about it and then have a mm-hmm. vision about how if we don't, we're going to be burned to death. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I think the text actually, like the timeline sub- is less supportive of some kind of prophecy. Unless, I mean, you could always say like the Targaryens had this pro- prophecy, but they thought they could do it from Dragonstone. But that doesn't really make sense either. Because if it's like you're fighting the whole evil north and you see it in a magic vision, you got to kind of know you need everybody on board for right. that. Right. Uh-huh. So. I think timeline-wise, it supports more of this being political versus prophetic. Yeah. Yeah, that strikes me as, like, a decision that um, House of the Dragon made that I'm I'm curious to see if it goes anywhere and what it means, because I'm not sure why the show made that decision. My worry is that the show made that decision because George R. R. Martin told them about it. And it is something in the text, which is possible. I mean, I guess it's not a worry of mine. It's just something that it's it is definitely possible. I don't love it. Um, I think it would depend. Unfortunately, I think we need uh, the Winds of Winter and the Dream of Spring to answer this question. Right. And Lord, Lord only knows when we'll get that. <laughs> so, 
we're, we're gonna be done with this podcast before we get those books <laughs> Uh, I will give you a little insight into my uh, neurodivergent brain because when you said like Lord only knows, my brain started singing the song God only knows, but like filled in, um, <laughs> filled it in with when I'll read about you. So I was, my brain was singing God only knows when I'll read about you. Um, and I just feel like that's not going to become my mental theme music for like whenever anything yep. like a song of ice and fire comes up my brain's just gonna start singing that song oh my god we should record that as a parody get, <laughs> we'll get, get kylie, kylie to help it. yeah she get kylie it. to do it <laughs> kylie has a good singing voice yeah, and she does. can do music and can stuff. like play piano yeah we i love kylie that. we also love julia yes just, this is like this is the kylie julia appreciation podcast <laughs> mm-hmm. we love you yeah uh so anyway back to the show um mm-hmm. so the this chapter starts with uh, the maester being like, the conquest was done. Everything was off, awesome. He's totally the ruler. Um, there was a little bit, a dinky little bit of fighting for a decade. Um, I guess I should probably tell you about that. And yes. then he starts on what is mostly the Dornish Wars. Yeah. Yeah, there's like a few paragraphs about um, the three sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the summary is that there's like the the... Three sisters, they're islands near the Riverlands, um, mm-hmm. where uh, we talked a little bit. Marla came up in the last episode. She de- is declared queen, but very quickly the dudes are like, no, we don't want the dragons, so we will uh, depose our queen in a truly misogynistic way. It's pretty awful. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll yep. talk about that a little bit more later. Then the mm-hmm. Ironborn resist for a bit. Um Oh, and we get Lodos. I forgot Lodos yeah. was this early. I thought Lodos comes back later. That's what I'm remembering. He, yeah. he allegedly comes back. Yeah, uh, I had forgotten Lodos came this early, too. Yeah. Um, so Lodos is uh, this wonderful character out of the Iron Islands who uh, claims to be, I mean, basically is Drowned Jesus, right? That's kind of the yes, concept. Yes, he's Drowned Jesus. Yeah, and more or less leads a death cult. And um, he's like, I'm going to use magic to bring the Krakens and do all this stuff. And it's shocker, none of it works. So he... He says he's the son of the drowned god. So he goes to the ocean and puts rocks in his pockets and is like, I'm going to go talk to my dad real quick and drowns. <laughs> and then never returns. <laughs> and a bunch of people drown with him. And I'm like, dude. <laughs> it's like, it's very dark, but also just so, so very Ironborn. Like yeah. that's it's so the kind of thing an Ironborn dude that takes this way too seriously would do. Yep. So, yeah. Very metal. Yeah. Um, exactly yeah yeah everyone so after lodos walks into the sea to go to go have a chat with his dad um the longest chat the longest parent-child conference the most, ever the most permanent chat yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um everyone has a decision on who should be in charge but Aegon like doesn't seem to care we can talk about why but yeah. like Aegon's like I don't know. Ironborn, you decide. Figure out who you want to be king. This is an interesting Lord. point. This is an interesting point. It doesn't really tie much else to, like, the other themes and stuff. But, like, this is a part of characterizing Aegon, I think. That, like, the Ironborn are, like, trying to pick who should be ki- king. And the king of Westeros, who, like, really should just pick somebody. Right. Is, like, why don't you guys vote on it? And it's, like, that doesn't sound very divine right of kings of you. Right. To to be like, why don't you like do something that's like, it's not democracy, but it's like, why don't you vote on like pick your own ruler, and 
I was wondering, you and I both were wondering why Aegon did that. I think Aegon just, like, genuinely couldn't make a choice. Yeah, I agree. Like, this this reminds me very much of Viserys yes. in uh, House of the Dragon and in Fire and Blood, who just, like, doesn't like making choices. Like, clearly mm-hmm. doesn't like making choices unless pushed to extremes. Yes. Um, unless kind of forced to. That Aegon strikes me as just kind of, like, he just can't be fucked. He's just like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know and I don't care. So yeah. you guys deal with it. And this is part of why I think you and I come to the conclusion that like he doesn't make a lot of these decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't say that Rainey's and Visenya are not there. But I get the impression that they're not there precisely because... It doesn't say they are there, right? Exactly. Right, it doesn't say they are there. And I feel like this is the kind of place where we're actually seeing what Aegon is like when Rhaenys and Visenya are not there. He's just like, I don't know. Someone else make a decision. I don't want to choose. And that this is why... He's like, I don't care. Everything. This is not my Aegon fort. I, this is <laughs> this not my Aegon fort. Not not my problem. <laughs> so wh- whoever you want is fine, and they pick a great joy, and that's how. That's how one of the big houses in Westeros is founded because Aegon said, "I don't give a fuck. You go yeah. do it." <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, our boy. He's great. He's yep. What a good boy. Um. um I mean, I do want to give him credit, though. Like, I do think when it comes to the Ironborn, he made some good uh, political decisions that were also just, like, good human kind of decisions. Like, mm-hmm. the, um, I forget the name of the king that dies or that he, that that was, like, rebelling or whatever that he puts down. He does not kill that guy's infant son. So I'm like, thank you right. for not killing a literal baby. Like, that's mm-hmm. nice of you for not killing a little baby. There are other people who would have, i.e., you know, Robert Baratheon. Uh, there were like pl- there's plenty of examples throughout the history and a song of ice and fire of people killing literal infants for fear of who they might become and Aegon's like it's fine like l- let's let's not do that and I, I think that's a really good characterization the fact that he wasn't a uh, especially cruel person or really I don't think there's anything that characterizes him as cruel at all no I don't think so I agree with you I don't get the impression that he was especially cruel um yeah so he puts down the Iron Islands, uh, and then, and then we got a little, little trouble in Dorne. Just a little, just, smidge just, of, a, just, little. A, just a tad. So the descriptions of what happens in Dorne takes up the vast majority of this chapter. We've got plenty, plenty to analyze in this. Yeah. The, the briefest of brief summary is that the Dornish resisted successfully, mm-hmm. and uh, they used their terrain to their advantage. They use this um, similar tactics to when the first time Rhaenys came to Dorne of just like disappearing yeah. uh, into the sands, of reappearing, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, really setting really good traps for different parts of Aegon's army and like really fucking them up, like truly genuinely really fucking them up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a really good example of that is the mission to accomplish sign. That- <laughs> <laughs> So I think Aegon gets to, he gets a Sunspear, right? Is that where he hangs the mission to accomplish sign? Yeah, they eventually yeah. work their way over to Sunspear. Um, yeah. After mostly meeting very, I can't remember at that point, um, that they've had some like pretty bloody fighting to that point mm-hmm. um, and some pretty good traps. And then he finally get like, Aegon has the easiest way. Yeah. Like they're, they're, they send like several fronts down like various passages, like one down the Boneway and one down the Prince's Pass. 
Um, <laughs> and lots of people die or like drink poisoned water because that's the other thing the Dornish do is like they they flee and then they poison all the wells mm-hmm. um, behind them. And um, and like Aegon has like a mostly clear path and they gets yeah. to and then gets to Sunspear and is like, well, no one's here, so I'm in charge now. We win. Yep. <laughs> and he's like, we are now in charge. And he names someone uh, Warden of the Sands, uh-huh. which is just the cutest thing. I'm like, oh, sweetie. Uh-huh. Yep. You really wanted it. You really, you were like, this is going to be my new cool fort. My new buddy's here with his right. little title. It's great. And so they, they put all these people in power and Aegon says, conquered. And then he leaves. Yep. And as soon as he leaves, all those Dornish that went mysteriously missing pop back up. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. And take it back. It's, so like, it's, re- it's like truly adorable to me that he was like, I can just say that I won and tell everyone who lives here that your mm-hmm. li- that your lords are traitors and that I'm in charge mm-hmm. now and everyone will listen. Right. Why wouldn't they? Of Why course they, they would. Listen? Yeah. Uh, uh, what's the problem? <laughs> it's just like Viserys. Like, she's my heir. Why wouldn't you listen to that after I'm gone and can't enforce it? Oh, I wonder why. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So he... Uh, he preemptively hangs his mission accomplished sign, and uh, we're weirdly enough, mission not accomplished. And uh, right, and I think it's something like eight or nine more years of battle. Yeah, fighting. it's like some insane number. Uh, but our girl Rainus. Yeah, Rainus and Maraxes. You want to talk about what happens with them? Um, yeah. I mean, one thing I want to point out is that like this is called a, a Dornish War. This is the quote unquote first Dornish War, and I can't remember how many there are. There are like two or three. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's mostly just like a bloody ineffectual campaign to try and conquer Dorne instead of just like leaving it alone. Yep. Like that, that's the thing that gets me about like nine pages of bloody fighting where lots of people die. Is that like, Aegon could have just not done this. Yeah. Like at any point in the 10 years, he could have just been like, eh. Mm-hmm. I don't actually need to be in charge of seven kingdoms or I could be in charge of seven kingdoms and just make up a new one. Right. Well, I mean, I guess that's a, that's a good question I hadn't thought of. I wonder who, who, who actually made the decision that they had to have Dorne. Right. You know, who, was it Rhaenys who had previously met Maria Martell and right. promised to come back? Yeah. You know, with fire and blood, with fire and blood. Was it, you know, because I don't, I don't know that it was Aegon. I think Aegon was, other people were making the major decisions and Aegon was carrying them out. Right. Yep. So. Was it Rainey's and Visenya together? Was it some combination of them and, like, pressure from the society and the faith of the seven? Was Were, were they, like, that committed to the symbolism? Or were they that committed to, like, um, in order to, for this truly to be a united kingdom, we have to include Dorne? But it's, it's interesting, though, because the Dornish, even prior to this, were, like, quite othered. And they had, like, you know, all those issues with, um, like, the people in their immediate geographical vicinity and fighting with them and stuff like that. So it wasn't like mm-hmm. people were like, wow, we need Dorn because we love it there so much and it's got to be part of this. Or it's such a rich resource. It wasn't like, you know, a high garden or anywhere where you get, like, lots of food from or something like that. It's just, like, a lot of sand, per the northern Westerosi. And... They really didn't want to be part of it. So, like, what like what was the threat? Right. You know? Like, it wasn't like they were going to invade and try to conquer Aegon. Right. The Dornish mostly just seemed to want to be left alone. 
Right. I mean, I wonder if the threat was the fact that they were led by a princess. Yeah. That's a threat to a... Yeah, that it's more of a cultural threat because, like, we see throughout, even in this chapter and the next one, um, that, like, the Dornish have very, have different ways of doing things. Like, Mm -hmm. they're still feudalist, but, like, they're less patriarchal feudalist than the the rest of Westeros. Mm -hmm. Um, That, yeah, I wonder if there was a level of just, like, cultural threat. Like, if we allow this nearby culture to exist that doesn't, isn't quite as patriarchal as ours, maybe Mm -hmm. it will infect us. Um, that or they're just like really completionist about the map, you know, like they're just like, <laughs> we well, need the whole con- thing. I need the whole continent. I God need to it. platinum. I need to platinum this <laughs> continent. I need every single one. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta collect them all. I have to collect all the cities. They must exactly. all be mine. <laughs> every card. All mine. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm not like, that's one thing that I'm not sure there's an, a satisfactory answer that we can find even peeling away like the maester's bias which is clearly deeply racist yes <laughs> um is like i don't actually know why Aegon and and rainies and Viserys, like visenya sorry um needed to conquer dorne especially i do feel like there's probably a certain point where it's sunk cost that after a few years of bloody fighting they were just like well we can't let them win so i think after rainis is deaf yeah. That, that's the easy explanation, right? So ultimately, you know, Rhaenys goes on Meraxes and uh, the, the Dornish, some Dornishman releases a scorpion and just rolls the, the hardest natural 20 on that and critical hits that dragon through the eye uh-huh. and uh, kills Meraxes and Rhaenys dies either then or later and we can absolutely discuss what we think about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, after the death of Rhaenys, I see it just being the brother and sister, like this being... Uh, personal this became personal not political at that point right and that being the motivation prior to that though is yeah i think there's a big question mark of like did they just want it all you know mm-hmm. right and even if like even if you introduce a prophecy into it from house of the dragon and say you know they had this prophetic vision that everybody needed to be together to fight the north i feel like dorn is like the least important part of that yeah like it's the furthest it has uh-huh. it's the, its population is not as populous as other places. Mm-hmm. It, they're not like skilled in fighting in the snow, you know that kind of stuff. Like I feel like the mm-hmm. north is probably your most important battlefront for that, or most important like source for that. So right. I don't I don't know. I think what we might be running into is that there isn't a good Watsonian reason, mm-hmm. but there's a good Doyleist reason, right? Which is that it was on the continent and George R. R. Martin wanted the continent to be united right yes yeah 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 uh-huh yeah um one thing that i want to point before we get to kind of like the what was the maesters thinking and like a fuller deeper analysis <clears throat> is um that we and we can talk we can circle back around to this later once we kind of get connections to a song of ice and fire but like we're starting to see like the themes of the futility of revenge and the futility of violence mm-hmm. is like yeah. starting to pop up already in dorn and it really interests me that he localizes that theme quite prominently in Dorne. Like, in mm-hmm. A Song of Ice and Fire, it's kind of everywhere. It's one of his major themes, is the futility of violence and revenge. Um, mm-hmm. But it is definitely, like, explicitly localized in the the Dornish plot in mm-hmm. um, Feast Dance, where we get yeah. Ariane 
um, and like everything that falls out after um, Oberyn is killed by the mountain, leading right. up to Elia's like beautiful, beautiful speech about the futility of revenge. Um, that we're already starting to see like the seeds of that in Dorne, and it's interesting to me that he localizes it so explicitly in Dorne that like Dorne. Mm-hmm in the fighting in this chapter is just like ultimately leads to Aegon like leading a bloody campaign of revenge. Right. For the death of his mm. wife. That is into- that is like not intentional. And even if it had been intentional, like he gets to make a choice as to whether or not he wants to pursue revenge, but it becomes about revenge, even leading up to the point where like Nymore sends his daughter to sue for peace and like the Westerosi are just kind of like well fuck the Dornish we hate them now um, right exactly we want revenge against them because all of our people that they killed and it's like right well you killed a bunch of their people so like where does right. it end you, you invaded them <laughs> right you started that's, this <laughs> that's a really interesting point Gretchen I and I wonder maybe we should keep tabs on this as we go forward because I wonder why that is mm-hmm. that because you're absolutely correct that theme is so crystallized in Feast Dance through the Dornish chapters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I mean, I'm wondering if it has something to do with the women, the, the women, basically, yeah. the fact that the women are in more positions of power, that they have um, more, they have more influence over and more control over what is actually done. Mm-hmm. And so maybe are more likely to have opinions about whether this is worth it. Mm-hmm. And what what the women don't have, and this is something with like Mary and Martell, what the women don't have in this society is this um, my dick is so big problem, right? Where, <laughs> right. where like you know, we back to our original kings, the Storm King and our uh, you know Harren and Harrenhal, Argalac the Arrogant, they died and their people died because mm-hmm. they couldn't they couldn't surrender because yeah. they needed to tell you how big their dick was. They, mm-hmm. they, the concept of honor was so warped for them yep. that like, because of their ego, they couldn't submit. Uh, and they, there was no choice but to engage in battle in the traditional I meet you on the field and just die for honor kind of way, right? Yeah. So <laughs> the w- women in the society are in a different position. So I wonder if like, like Mar- so Maria Martel people in this story criticize her because she didn't come out and engage in that way. She poisoned and hid and, you know, did these sort of things that were extremely effective. Yeah. Uh-huh. And she's the only one, the only one that won yep. against the dragon, the only one. Mm-hmm. And she's criticized for it, for being a coward. Uh-huh. And it's like, yeah, she's a coward, but you know what she did? She got to die of old age in her castle because you didn't take it over. Right. Right. So, I mean, I think that's really interesting that you, that you bring up the, I wonder if that, that is, that theme is easier to explore when your female characters are in the mindset to be able to explore it. Yeah. You. Right. They don't have the same commitment to external honor that so mm-hmm. many of the male characters do under, under this patriarchal feudalism. I think you're right about that. Cause um, even someone like, I'm trying to think of like a, like a Westerosi woman, like Sansa, for example, who's like really smart and very politically savvy. Santa doesn't really think about the fertility of revenge. I mean, mm-hmm. she suffers from the futility of revenge. From, you know, Rob, the Red Wedding happened because Rob went to war because King's Landing killed his father. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's that was all a revenge quest. She suffers from it. 
but never really thinks about it or says anything about it, you know? Like, right. At least from what we see. So it, it's definitely interesting. I like that. I feel like Kat is probably the closest we get to that in a Westerosi woman because I think that um, she starts to feel that way after Ned dies because mm-hmm. she, like, her, her attention shifts to, like, let me just go home and be with my children. Let me, yeah. you know, like, she doesn't, I mean, ultimately she becomes, like, the embodiment of revenge. <laughs> but, like, for a period for of her. time, <laughs> like, she's very much in this, like, okay, can't we just be done fighting, though? Like, I've lost my husband um, mm-hmm. at the point where she believes that, like, Rickon and um, Bran are lost to her, I think. Like, she's lost her daughters. Like, she's lost some of her children. She's like, let mm-hmm. me just go home and be with my own, like, the only children that I have left. Like, let's mm-hmm. be done fighting. Please, let's just rest and, like, bury our dead and go back to our loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, that she has, like, I don't think she ever says the futility of revenge the way that, like, Elia Martell is very much, like, right. very explicitly talks that way. But Kat has that same, like, weariness of fighting. And mm-hmm. even, like, tells Rob, and Rob's like, but no, Ned Stark right. killed my dad. And she's like, he's my husband. And I'm like, and like, what do you mean? Like, it's not like I don't love him. I just want to be done. And he's right. like, no, exactly. but my dad is dead. Yeah. And I don't know if there are men in the story. I'd have to think about it. I'm not sure there are men in the story that ever give up those kind of things. Mm-hmm. I think they get, they get the revenge thing. The revenge thing is so tied to their personal honor, their personal external honor that they just, they can't let it go. Right. And this is why we all need to go to therapy anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> okay. So well, wanna... we did a lot of analysis in our story section. <laughs> so let's get into what was the maester thinking? Uh... <laughs> my, my, my note is your racism is showing. This, this, is, this is the chapter where um, the maester does a racism. Yes. Those savage Dornishmen. They're just so savage. Uh-huh. And like... Okay, so one of my other questions reading this is, like, are the names of these places in Dorne literally what the Dornish people name them, or is this what the Westerosi name them? Because I cannot imagine anyone who lives in a place calling it Stinkwater and, like, Brimstone. Yeah. And, like, like all of the names feel Brimstone's like names that, cool. like, people who don't like the place come mm. in and are like, man, this sucks, I hate it. Um, This is the hellhole. Like... Yes. <laughs> like, they're naming everything after hell, and I'm like, do the people who live here actually call it this, or is this just, like, the Westerosi hate desert and think that That's everything in Dorne is miserable and are naming it all these terrible names? That's possible. I could also totally see the Westerosi naming it something like that, and the Dornish thinking it's hilarious. Yes. And being like, yeah, this is brimstone. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Oh, and the stink water? Okay, bud. You don't want to come here. That's fine. You don't have to. <laughs> Right. Hell holds, you're right. Don't come here. Uh-huh. You're gonna die. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but I it just like it that. felt very like otherizing. Yeah, I agree. In a way that I feels like agree. this is what conquerors name a place that they hate and, and have a lot of trouble conquering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um And the the very obvious like like fake rumors about like the Dornish are so savage, they take these prisoners and they do all these horrible things to these prisoners. Uh-huh. And like, they're torturing them, and they're, like, cutting off body parts, whatever. They have a like, competition as to how long they can keep people alive while they're chopping their body parts. I'm like, sure they do. I believe you. Again, I think the Dornish started that rumor. I think this is the Dornish. 
I think the daughters were like, yo, you know what they would love to hear about. It would scare the shit out of them. Listen, listen. <laughs> Somebody send some ravens, spread it, like, you know, tweet it out. And you know, no citation needed. I promise this is happening. And, mm-hmm. and like, it just, t- and like the Westerosi are so willing to believe that. Right. So it's like. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's giving stuff. the same kind of energy as like what you're talking about is what we see in um, A Song of Ice and Fire when Oberyn's like. Yeah, yeah, look at me. I'm a Dornishman. Yeah. I'm so very bisexual mm-hmm. and really like fighting people. And we want to have sure a threesome with a blonde woman. Do you know any blonde women? Where is the brothel? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, but exactly. like he's leading into it. He's leading into the racist stereotypes um, mm-hmm. as a cover, as a way to like hide um, in plain sight. And, like, right. have people believe a certain thing about him so he can actually do what he wants, which is actually get revenge for, like, the brutal death of, um, you know, of his of his sister and her children. So Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. And the, there's things in the text here, like, that the Dornish get blamed for that I think are in the text to, to make you think about it. So, like, the Dornish get blamed for, like, all kinds of deaths of various people, some of which were, like, in Dorne, it makes sense. But some were, like, just totally elsewhere. Like, there's a guy... That's like in a brothel in King's mm-hmm. Landing who gets smothered to death, and they're like the Dornish, and yep. it's like no, how, buddy? Right? No. Yes. At the very end of the chapter, <laughs> like after, like there's been like a series of retaliations, and like Aegon has like, you know, they've murdered a bunch of Dornish lords, and then they're like, well, the Dornishmen sure got their revenge. Um, this mm-hmm. one guy died of poison. In a, in wine and it was Dor- you know it was Dornish Dornish wine. red that's how we it know that the Dornish red. did it um, yep. and this one guy died in a brothel and I'm like I mean anyone can poison a cask of wine and like right, how do you think I, that I, the but, Dornish smothered a dude in a brothel right exactly it's like no buddy but I, I think that the text says that specifically to make the reader question that because right. George R. R. Martin does want you to question these yes. things so he does occasionally put things in that are just so blatantly ridiculous that you're like, come on. Like, mm-hmm. he got, got smothered in a brothel because he was, I don't know, a dick. And somebody else smothered him. Like, it doesn't have to do with, like, politics. Right. You know. Right. Uh, it's just like a lord who died. So, like, the, the Dornishman must be seeking revenge for all of the lords that we killed. I think there's a really interesting, there's a really interesting concept. Um, I don't know what it's called. So the, the concept is just, like, if you hear neighing, it's most likely a horse, not a zebra. Yes. And Or if you hear hoofs, it's most likely a horse, not a zebra. And I think that George R. R. Martin hues to that pretty closely, where, like, there's always space for, like, crazy conspiracy theories about different things or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, like, vast majority of the time, it's the most normal explanation. Yep. And it's, so I, I think this is, like, one of those examples. Yep. Um, oh, the other guy dies hunting. That's right. There was, like, some oh. dude dies on a, like, on a hunting trip. And I'm like, dudes die in hunting trips all the time. All the time. <laughs> King all the Robert time. died. King Robert died in a hunting trip. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, King Robert was kind of murdered. So I don't know that that counts. I don't know that I would count it as a murder. It doesn't... He was anything. kind of. He, they, um, Cersei set it up so that it was very likely that he would die. Created yeah. some strong circumstances that he would very likely die. Yeah, it couldn't be charged as a murder, though. She couldn't be No, yeah, 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 yeah. Legally, it's not a murder. Hmm. Um, I have a very one-track mind when it comes to whether a crime's occurred. Does Thank you, lawyer, for telling us the legal whether or not <laughs> doesn't satisfy the legal requirements. Yes or no? <laughs> uh, we get a couple More of other legal. instances of Dornish racism. We've got like the way that the Westerosi respond by just like 
Uh, look at all of the, the women and cowards and poison is a woman's weapon. And, uh-huh. you know, they're all traitors. Um, mm-hmm. Like, and I then think the, that... the slandering of slandering of Maria. Yeah. She, she, she just dies from old age because she ruled for like 60 plus years. Good for she her. was definitely fucking a horse when it she happened. She was definitely fucking a horse. That's a real life rumor about some queen, isn't it? I've heard that before. I don't know. I'm maybe a, I'm not a good history person. I'm sure. It, but listeners, if you know, um, I don't know, comment or something. We don't have an email still, so you can't tell us directly. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, yeah, they, they, I, and I think what you put in the notes here is absolutely correct. That the Westerosi were just so like, annoyed that the mm-hmm. Dornish successfully beat back the dragon in a way they couldn't especially like the these dornish people who are already othered for their race and are led by a woman mm-hmm. successfully beat back the dragon and killed the dragon in the process yep yep none of these other lords great lords could do this or get anywhere near doing this mm-hmm. i'm i'm abs- i'm sure that made their them feel like their dicks were very very small yep yeah and that was a, a large part of like the way this language is and the way the Dornish are, are really othered for the rest of Westerosi history. Right. I mean, up to A Song of Ice and Fire. Like when you see any of these kinds of like same threads of like, oh yeah, like I'm thinking of when um Ares says that um that Rhaegar's daughter smells Dornish, whatever the fuck yeah. that means. Yeah. Um but like just like the Dornish racism becomes so deeply, deeply entrenched. And so mm-hmm. much of it comes back to this, to the fact mm-hmm. that the Dornish were like successfully able to mount a resistance to conquest mm-hmm. um, in a way that none of the other Westerosi lords were able to. Um, and I think that that just like deeply entrenches like the already embedded racism that you're talking about, Caroline, where like mm-hmm. they are already, um, you know, they live in a very different biome. They live across mm-hmm. the mountains. They have customs that we don't, you know, mm-hmm. like they have different customs than we do, which includes women being able to inherit and rule. And that makes, you know, our little patriarchy brains feel uncomfy mm-hmm. um, that they were already racially otherized. And like this whole sequence of events just like instantiates them as like the worst. Like we hate mm-hmm. those guys down there. They murder all of our people. Um, they eat funny food and they let their women rule like they're deeply suspect. Right, exactly. And yeah, it just continues through A Song of Ice and Fire. And what I, I mean, we've talked about this on other podcasts, what's so brilliant about it is that up until Feast Dance, you could, as the reader, just take that as true because fantasy stories do it all the time where they, you know, these are the orcs. They all do this. These are the elves. They all do this. Mm-hmm. And they're like a monolith. But once you get into the point of views, the Dornish point of views, you realize, like, oh, just kidding. These are people, regular humans. Right. And the Westerosi are racist. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Maybe we should question when people make broad sweeping statements about entire groups. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Thoughts, themes. (laughs) Right. So let's get into a little bit more of what really happened. I really liked your note here about, so at the beginning of the conquest, because I'm just so interested in Rainey's relationship to Dorn. (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting to me. It's so interesting. Um, Based on what we said last time, like, she goes to Dorne, talks with Maria, and is like, okay, we're cool. We'll let you be Mm. fine this time. But next time, next time, I sure am going to come back with fire and blood. Mm -hmm. And when Rhaenys comes back with fire and blood, she burns Planky Town. She does. She does burn Planky Town. But 
Which she, is a which is on the river. Well, it's on the river. So I, this is what I was. This is my note. Was attack on Planky Town actually didn't kill many people planned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was wondering if the choice to burn Planky Town was based on the fact that Planky Town itself is made of wood. It's going to burn. Uh huh. But because it is on the river, there's an easy place for the actual humans to escape and not die. Yep. So that it's one of those kind of strategic things where it's like I'm burning this to show you how powerful I am, but I'm not actually killing all that many people because I want them to be my subjects. I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, I can't rule over a field of corpses. I, I, I need to yep. have people be alive. Mm-hmm. So I, I read that because there's a note, like it says specifically in the text that not that many people died because they fled into the river. And I'm like, they're smart. Rainus is smart enough to know where the people are going to flee. Right. So I, I kind of wondered if that was, if that was intentional on her mm-hmm. part. Right. Yes. And it strikes me also that like Rainy's also knew from last time how the Dornish responded. She was aware that like they're just going to go and hide. So like and like burning empty castles, I mean, could be symbolic, but like Mm -hmm. burning Planky Town is like more symbolic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know, one could make a reasonable case for like. I know people will be there, but they're also mostly going to survive. Like, right. mm-hmm. in a way that, like, feels... Because we know... I mean, this is this is spoilers, but, like, Rainey's seems like she has, like, a softer heart and is, like, less interested in just, like, wholesale destruction of things, even for the mm-hmm. symbolism of wholesale destruction. The way mm-hmm. that, like... I feel like Aegon and Visenya when they are working together are more likely to do just like utter devastation mm-hmm. and like willing to like, you know, burn a heron hall to the ground for the symbolism mm-hmm. of like burning an entire castle to the ground and everyone inside of it. Um, Rainy strikes me as less interested in those kinds of like symbolism where actual people die. Yeah. I, I tend to agree. I think Rainy's also um, having been enjoyed before, knew that like attacking Planky Town like it would only be like small folk yeah like she knows that like it's good it's like she's not even like at least when you burn Harren Hall you know Harren the Black is inside right so you're you're killing the leader to take over right but it's like okay if I go and burn Sunspear Maria is not going to be there none of her lords are going to like nobody important is going to be there I'm just killing the tiniest like uh, the the lowest people on the ladder here for what purpose? They're right. not in charge. Killing them's not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to look really bad killing, like, old people and kids. Right. So, uh-huh. plus, I mean, I, I think the text supports, at least at this point, that Aegon, Visenya, and Rhaenys all don't want to do just, like, abject cruelty for no reason. Yep. They, or really cruelty at all. So far, they haven't really done anything cruel. They've done very strategic mm-hmm. attacks to gain, you know, to gain power. Right. Yeah, um, and yeah, I agree. Like, I do think that, like, they show a strategic sense of how they want to do things that that mm-hmm. Aegon and Visenya and Rhaenys all do, except until they get real mad. Um, yeah. And then they just, <laughs> and then you can't contain it once they get big mad. And then, then they say Dracarys. Yes. And then then they <laughs> like, no strategy, only burning. Yes. Um, what fascinates me is how strategic the Dornish seem to be in a way that, like, you know, like we've hinted at that, like none of the rest of the Westerosi, like they try to be strategic, but like mm-hmm. it's the kind of strategy that doesn't work when you're fighting dragons. 
Like, let's right, go into exactly. the, like, let's melt into the woods. Well, woods are made of, of wood and they burn. So, like, sorry, now, now your wood's on fire. Mm-hmm. Like, now you're, all your trees and fields are on fire. What was amazing to me about the Dornish is the, the, um, their strategy was so cohesive mm-hmm. and, like, they were so well organized. Yep. Like, like, because the, the, when Aegon goes in, he splits the army into three. Uh-huh. And the other two, well, like, one of them, for example, gets trapped in this, like, causeway kind of situation. Yep. And I was reading that, and I'm like, that's brilliant. But if Balerion had been there, that would have never worked. Yep. So I'm like, the Dornish must have had some kind of, like, crazy good communication system Mm -hmm. to be able to pick what kind of traps to do where. Because they needed to know who who and what kind of army was coming in what direction. Mm -hmm. So they either had, like, really awesome, like, spies on the inside to give them information, which maybe they did. Um... Or they just, like, had really, really good scouting and information gathering mm-hmm. to know, like, okay, this army's going in this direction, we can attack them here. This is where the dragon is, so this thing's not going to work there, but we can do this over here, that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, it, it's, and, like, which wells to poison, like, you were saying before they poison the water, like, they clearly didn't go over all of Dorne and poison every single one. Mm-hmm. They poisoned the ones in the path of the invaders. Right. So there must have been, like, Dornish armies just, like, scattered around doing this kind of stuff and the the organization mm-hmm. is was awesome yeah very, like very there's good. there's so much strategy and there's so much tactics there's both like that we see like a cohesive strategy to how they mm-hmm. want to how they want to defend themselves which is like um you know more closer to what we might call guerrilla warfare rather than yes. just kind of like lining up on a battlefield or like two armies face each other and then like smash mm-hmm. into each other with swords that like this is the kind of like They'll appear and, like, throw rocks at people and then hide in caves and then pop up somewhere else and, like, throw spears at people and, like, hide in caves and then poison the wells. And, like, it's – it's there's a strategy involved and it's also deeply tactical. Like, they understand the terrain. They understand how to use the terrain to their advantage. They understand how – like, the fact that the Westerosi are unfamiliar with the terrain and are going to be looking for certain things that, like, they're on horseback. They're going to need water and they're going to need food. So, like, Mm -hmm. how do we minimize – the effectiveness of cavalry even mm-hmm. is to like, well, you poison the water and like burn all the field, like whatever fields are available, you burn them because you mm-hmm. can plant them later. You can come back right. and plant them later. But like, if you're mm-hmm. like burning the fields in f- ahead of the invaders means that like, that means all their horses are probably going to die and all their right, people exactly. too. Exactly. It's actually very similar to how the uh, revolutionary war was won. Yeah. George Washington as a commander, it's called, it's, if I recall correctly, because I read a book about this, um, it's called Fabian Tactics. It's a guerrilla warfare. Fabian Tactics is the same same thing. Uh-huh. But it's this a concept of like popping up, doing a little bit of damage and leaving, kind of mm-hmm. like nickel and diming your enemy. Yep. And that's how that's how the Revolutionary War was won. And the British invaders were not used to that. They were like, "Come onto the field and fight us." And George Washington from a tree far away was like, "No." And, <laughs> they, and they like that's that's how they beat the British army, which was so huge and powerful at the time, mm-hmm. it was, it's almost the exact same thing. Um, oh, I was just thinking I would love an adaptation of this 10 years, uh, like a TV adaptation of the, of Aegon and Visenya and Rhaenys trying to invade Dorne and, but from the Dornish perspective. Yeah. Of like the, the Dorne and like, cause the only, I mean, like we get a couple of Dornish Lord names dropped here and there, but like Maria is obviously the leader, but there must have been, just awesome generals mm-hmm. in this. Yep. Just just amazing military commanders 
to think of this stuff to carry out. I mean, like, I would love, love, love to watch an adaptation that fleshed that out. Yeah. That would be really, really cool. Mm -hmm. HBO, get on that, please. Please, that'd be great. Um, Just call it it Unbound, Unbound, Unbroken. Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That'd be so, oh, so good. Um, You have a note here about the disappearing army. I don't know what happened to them. But the one thing it did make me think of is um, there's a story about, like, a Roman legion, and it's the Ninth Legion, and this is when Rome is trying to conquer Britain. Um, and like this whole entire Roman legion just like disappears. Like they go, like they're going up into like the Scottish highlands up in the north of England, um, or Britain. It's not England anymore. They're going up into Scotland and like, just like disappear. And we have no record of what happened to them. Like they never found like the standard, um, of the Roman legion, which was like an eagle on a pole and it's got like a flag and stuff. Um, they never find it. It just like disappears off the face, disappears off the face of the earth. I mean, what probably mm. happened is like they were all murdered somewhere and like just no one found them. Like, yeah, I mean, I think most likely with the Dornish, with the with the West Rosie army, I think it's kind of like when planes get lost and they like crash over the ocean. We're like, why can't we find it? The ocean's like really, really big. It's real big, everybody. And, the, <laughs> and real deep. The, yeah. And the sands of Dorn are really, really big. Yep. Like it's hard to find, especially like if you're just like, Searching on foot, because, like, I mean, even if they have the dragons fly over, like, mm-hmm. you know, you don't, just can't zoom in or anything like that to search. Um, my guess is that they probably just perished in the sands. Yep. Like, I don't even think the Dornish had anything to do with it, like, actively. I don't even know that they were attacked or anything like that. I think it was just, like, they wandered into the desert and the Dornish said, fucking good luck, buddy. Yeah, and, have fun with that. And they just dehydrated and starved and yep. were consumed by the sand, more or less. Yep. Yeah, I don't think that there's anything magical about it or anything. I, I no, don't just no. think they wandered off into the desert and like were never seen again, which happens. Right. Yeah. Um, exactly. So this brings up the question, like we we're talking about how successful they are. Um, mm-hmm. Like, what did they do? Like we've talked about taxes, but like, what are some other things that like, why couldn't this have been done elsewhere? Like, what what yeah. is it that made them so successful in... You know, other than the things that we've talked about, are there any other things that, like, we can point to to say, like, why was it that they were so successful in, in like, preventing themselves from being conquered for 10 years? I don't want to just, like, you know, blanket statement say, like, women are better at this. Um, <laughs> but I want to cite this as an example of how women are better at this because uh, leadership requires mm-hmm. uh, humility to do what needs to be done for your people. Like mm-hmm. we saw with Torrin Stark. I, I give a lot of kudos to Torrin Stark in the North yep. for kneeling and not just butchering all of his people. That was the correct decision, mm-hmm. right? That was the right decision as a leader. He took the ego hit to save everyone yep. and all of their descendants. It was very important, right? Um, Maria Martel didn't have the pa- didn't have two patriarchy problems. One, she didn't have the patriarchy problem of having her ego tied to how she does in battle, mm-hmm. um, how she does in like a particular kind of regular feudal field battle. And two, she didn't have the problem of the patriarchy telling her no, right? Yeah. She was in power. Mm-hmm. So she could say, there's a dragon, there's dragons coming. We really can't face them head on. We've seen what happens. So we're going to do something different. We're going to do all, we're going to use all of the tricks. I'm going to get out my bag of tricks. So we're going to do all the tricks to just get them little by little. And mm-hmm. 
it didn't matter if people called her a coward or called the Dornishman a coward, cowardice or whatever. Like they didn't care, right? Because they she they had faith in her as a leader, and she didn't have such a weak ego to care what they thought. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what made the difference because any of the other places could have done the same tactics. They didn't have the access to the sands, but the North, for example, the North is equally as barren. Right. And if they had, they could have done a very similar thing in the North. Lead everyone into wh- um, the, uh, like the neck and all the swamps. Oh, exactly. Oh, absolutely. You could take, I mean, nobody's ever taken Mo Kalen from the South. Uh-huh. So, right. I mean, you can, there's tons of, there's a, that makes a choke point in the North. There's tons of ways they could have used the landscape there to do the exact same thing. But it was, that was never an option for Torrin Stark. Mm-hmm. It was either fight or submit. It wasn't, you know, Fabian tactics, guerrilla warfare kind of stuff. Right, right. Yeah, I like that. Like, they're less... Maria Martell clearly doesn't buy into the system of, like, quote-unquote, what battle should look like. Exactly. And is willing to, like, think outside the box, willing to use... um, To think differently about what resistance could look like. Right. Um, And I do think you're right to point... Like, to point out that it is a woman... And I don't think that Martin is necessarily saying, well, like, all women would think this way, but a woman under patriarchy is less committed to mm-hmm. the the patriarchal structures. And especially when we already know that Dorne kind of does things differently, has, like, a less deeply entrenched patriarchy where women mm-hmm. can have power and make decisions, that, like, a woman who is raised in a society where... Like, she's less committed to, like, the structure of patriarchy and also has the freedom to then make decisions is more likely to be able to think mm-hmm. laterally. Yep. Exactly. In this Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Completely. And it kind of gets to a theme that, I don't know, we might have hit on a little bit of, like, maybe patriarchy is bad. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe patriarchy limits the way you can think about the world and leads to the literal death of you and your people. Mm-hmm. Right. You know. Right. Maybe, right. You know, and like right. a lot of the Dornish die. Like we don't want to like gloss over that a lot of the Dornish die. But another mm-hmm. thing to notice about her tactics is like she's also less committed to just like throw small folk bodies at the problem. Mm-hmm. The way that the other Westerosi lords do that like this feels less like a a lord just like making decisions about who whose bodies matter and whose lives matter and this mm-hmm. feels like it's a like that the level of resistance is like the small folk have bought into this yes like there's, the, a, there's a big cohesion in dorn everyone is on board right for this right like yeah. they're being less used as just like fodder for mm-hmm. like the high lords to prevent their own deaths like someone like a heron um, or even just the lords who are like, yeah, sure, I'll throw a bunch of bodies at the problem. And, like, some of them are highborn. But, like, when they say they're fielding 10,000 people, like, 9,000 of those are probably small folk. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh-oh. I mean, I think that the, the fact of the matter is the Dornish have this sort of nationalism mm-hmm. um, uh, that Kylie and Julia speak about on, on About Books and Abri all the time, uh, very right. eloquently and much more eloquently than I do. Uh, and... That was part of their strength was that they were so united mm-hmm. they were so so united in this uh the whole time yeah so I, th- I think that's definitely a big part of why they were so good okay. um yeah so speaking about the dornish what happened to rainus 
Yeah. Okay. Oh my god. I feel like we've got like two big questions left, which is like, what happened to Rainey's, and then what was in that goddamn What's letter? What's in the letter? Oh my god, you've got a letter so hard, so like crazy that you start bleeding from your hands. Stigmata. <laughs> oh my god. Just thought of that. It was magic. It was magic. It it literally every iteration. Every iteration of this, I like. So I I like I don't I can't pick like what what version of this I like. So the text itself only says. You know, obviously, Rainus is either killed or captured with Meraxes. Mm-hmm. Meraxes dies then, but it's unclear whether she's killed then as well or whether she's captured. Mm-hmm. So, this is after Maria Martel dies, right? That this delegation is sent. Uh, Daria sent the daughter is sent to. Yeah, this is like Ni- so. Maria dies, and her son Nymor, who's already sixty, um, is like, mm-hmm. I don't want to fight anymore. I'm tired. Yeah, he's like, I'm I'm sleepy. <laughs> I am <laughs> tired. <laughs> if you are familiar with the end of the world. He, um, he says, uh, "He says I grow weary of war." Uh-huh. So he sends his daughter to King's Landing, Daria, and everyone's like, "Do horrible things to Daria because we want to get back to Dornish." And Daria's like, "But first, King Aegon, I have a letter for you and for only you." Mm-hmm. And Aegon, sitting on the Iron Throne, reads it, and he he just reads it to himself, and it's so intense that he, he starts ble- his hand starts bleeding. Uh huh. And the question there is like. Why? <laughs> yeah, why did he start bleeding? I The first time I read it, I thought, I interpreted that as meaning, like, he clutched his hand so tightly he, like, caught himself. Oh. So that was one interpretation. I've seen also, like, it was a really intense paper cut. Um, I've seen- <laughs> that was my, like, joke option. I was like, was it just, like, yeah. a really bad paper cut? He was, like, holding the paper so hard he cut his That's hand. That's what people say. People say, like, like, he got it from the paper. Uh, it could also be uh, the Iron Throne mm-hmm. cuts him. Which could be significant. Yep. Or it could be that there was dark magic in the letter. Dark magic from the Dornish. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, Maria, before she died, ensorcelled the letter. Yes, so obviously. (laughs) Women in the dark arts. (laughs) So which one do you think it is? Um, I like the symbolism of the cutting on the throne because that's Mm going to become such a running theme throughout fire and blood mm-hmm. is like kings who cut themselves in the iron throne um and i like the symbolism of that because like to me like the symbolism is not like well the throne knows who the rightful ruler is and we'll cut them if they're bad mm-hmm. like whatever sure like you can think that <laughs> but like to me what it represents is like that monarchy is bad and that like mm-hmm. the the people who rule in this manner are also damaged in the act of, mm-hmm. of ruling in this way. And, like, the Precisely. Iron Throne is, like, literally a double-edged sword. Like, it's made of swords. And so, like, this is, like... Oh, I like that. It's a double-edged... Oh, I like that a lot, actually. Yeah, it's a double-edged oh. sword that, like, cuts the king as well as, you know, mm-hmm. a symbol for how the king had conquered. It it's is dangerous to It's dangerous to the king and to his subjects. Yes. Right. Yeah. And that this is, like, the first cut. Like, the first... Mm sign of just how damaging this kind of like imperialist monarchy is like that the mm-hmm. f- that it's the first cut the first wound in yeah. in the royal line and that lines up very neatly with the fact that this is also about rainies very likely that this letter is about rainies which was like actually like the first like the first real tragedy that Aegon suffered is the death of his wife and the death right. of the dragon right um, I, I like all of that. I agree. 
I like the Iron Throne explanation too because it makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. Like you're sitting on a, a chair that's full of sharp things, you get a cut. How? Probably from the sharp things. Probably from the right? sharp things. Like probably from the sharp things. <laughs> probably not. Says. Yeah, probably not from like clenching your fist really hard, and probably not from a really intense paper cut. And this is gonna this is gonna surprise you. I don't think the letter was sorcery. Uh, I, I, I don't think what? that that was. Uh, I know. I, I don't. I, I discredit that one pretty immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I like it because it makes a pra- It's practical in terms of like it physically happening. Right. And it also has the significance as you were describing. Right. So I'm totally down for that. So the next big. So then after he gets his little cutsy on the throne, he flies to Dragonstone, and does something. And then comes back and is like, yeah, we can make a piece. We're good. And he then goes he to his, his thinking rock. He does. Because I saw that in your notes. <laughs> it's, it's his thinking rock. It's his thinking rock. Well, is it his thinking rock? Or was there something in the letter that he had to research at Dragonstone? Mm-hmm. Was there, you know, it's it's so mysterious. And I love every iteration of what this could be, of what's in this letter. So do you have thoughts uh, about what you think is in the letter? I I've... Ever since I read this book for the first time, uh, my I've never landed on a specific one. I do I do like the theory that they had Rainus in a dungeon somewhere, and she wrote the letter and said, "Please make a peace, and they'll like finally let me die." Uh, but I do think that presents a Watsonian problem of why wouldn't he go harder? Mm-hmm. Um, I do also like the theory that. She was a captive in a place that he destroyed, and he killed her, or yep. Visenya killed her. That's, That's the one that, like, I don't know how much I believe it, but I love the, like, the tragic irony like the irony. Right. Yeah, that, like, in his wrath, because when, when Rainey's dies, we kind of glossed this out, like, we kind of skipped past this. So when Rainey's dies, like, Aegon... It, it's like the next years were the years of the dragon's wrath. So like right. Aegon and Visenya get real mad that, that Rhaenys mm-hmm. is dead and basically just like burn the shit out of Dorne. Like mm-hmm. it says that in one place, like the sands turned to glass because the right, fires the were so hot. Yeah, fire, yeah. Um, they just like go to town, like burning as much of Dorne as they can, reburning Dorne. They're real mm-hmm. angry. And so yeah. they're burning a bunch of Dorne. And like, I love the tragic irony that like in their anger, they burned one of the castles where Rainey's was being held captive and killed her. And like that to me is just like, oh, oh, oh I do I, love oh, that. It hurts so I good. <laughs> that is that. And that would explain why he agreed to the peace as opposed to like if they had if they had her captive. Mm-hmm. And even if she wrote to him and said, like, please, like, I just want this to end. You know, I don't know that he he would have. And I don't know that he would have not told Visenya. Right. Because it seems like he reads it and doesn't tell Visenya. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't see Visenya agreeing to this kind of thing if Rainus was still alive somewhere. I see yep. them going just more ham uh-huh. if they knew, you know? So I, I do I do like the explanation. I, but the other explanation is something you came up with that uh, I had never thought about, about Rainus just staying in Dorne. Yeah, yeah. This is my, like, yeah. if I were to write a fanfic, yeah. um, I would write a fanfic about how... Um, She's either staying of her own volition or being held hostage and mm-hmm. in the kind of like hostage that's like you're an honored guest kind of like um, 
you know, children who are fostered by other families are like technically hostages, actually, but mm-hmm. like they don't live that way. And no one really likes to think about that being what happened. But like I, my very pet tinfoil theory, which like I don't think is true at all, but like I would write a fanfic about it, is that mm-hmm. she stays of her own volition. That like maybe she was deeply injured after the fall from her. Actually, she would be if she fell off her dragon. Um, mm-hmm. That she wasn't tortured, but that like she had already like kind of formed a connection with Maria. Right. Like I was they, thinking about that, what you brought up last time. Yeah. Clearly respected each other. Um, I mean, you could use it as a way to explain why she burns Planky Town, because again, she's burning a thing that's like, has like strategic significance, but like no one dies. That like she has a kind of sympathy for Dorne that like, mm. so when she survives and is maybe treated well, makes the decision to like voluntarily stay as maybe even potentially yeah. like a voluntary hostage. Um, mm. But, like, is actually just, like, wants to live there. Um, and in my fanfic version, if I was going to write all of this as fanfic, like, she probably hooks up with Daria. Mm. Oh, I would love that. And, oh, like, then I... gets to live the rest of her life and become Daria's consort. Just, but her secret consort. That, yeah. like, no one talks I mean, about. I mean, I could definitely see that if, like, because of, like, being sort of nursed back to health with, like, Mary and Martell and, like, with the Martells and sort of that, and sort of getting to see, like, these aren't savages mm-hmm. and we were the savages we invaded them right yeah you know and kind of her loyalty shifting mm-hmm. to the dornish oh i would love that oh hbo hbo we have a lot of ideas <laughs> <laughs> tell <laughs> listen, me this story that would be so cool mm-hmm. that would be like such a cool I, I and that would also explain why Aegon sues for peace or accepts the peace because the if the letter was from Raina saying like listen i'm here i'm alive I'm never coming home. They're not letting me go. But you've got to stop. Otherwise, they're going to kill me. Right. I'm their hostage. Right. The only question I have there is why did it take so long? for? I guess because Maria was the leader, so it wasn't until nine more suit for peace. Uh-huh. That's why. Okay. I, I, I answered my own question. Ignore me. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Um, I know we're like... Uh, very long. We're running long, so I feel like we got it. We got some things to hit. I I just I literally just want to say this. We don't have to talk about it, but I just want to say that the first time that I read Fire and Blood, and every time thereafter, when I read the end of this chapter where it says like a younger, more bloodthirsty queen, I'm like, is that the male equivalent of the younger, more beautiful queen prophecy? Yeah, younger, more bloodthirsty king. A younger, more younger, bloodthirsty more king. That is the uh, younger, more beautiful queen equivalent. I love that. Um, All right, so next, the next question we have is who gets shafted? Um, this is, your first note is literally Maraxes. Literally Maraxes. <laughs> literally a, a shaft of a, of a scorpion into the eye. <laughs> Absolutely terrible. Oh, and then there's, there's Queen Marla. So you want to talk about Queen Marla? Oh, God, yeah. We brought her up at the very beginning and said we were going to circle back around. So um, Queen Marla uh, is the queen of the three sisters that gets deposed. Um and uh, she gets deposed in a real bad way. Um, mm-hmm. So it says um, his sister. So this is um, Stefan Sunderland. So Marla Sunderland's brother deposes her. Um, so it says his sister, the deposed queen, was exiled and imprisoned. After five years, her tongue was removed and she spent the remainder of her life with the silent sisters tending to the noble dead. Like, yep. Fuck you, Stefan Sunderland. Fuck you. Literally, literally silenced. Yeah, literally silenced. Like literally we, silencing women, yeah. If we had any doubt how Martin feels, I feel like we've got, like, a queen who is usurped from power and then literally silenced. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Says a thing. Um, and it, I think, like, to me, like, the cherry on top of this, like, misogyny cake is that this is, like, the islands are called the Three Sisters. And yeah. these are called the Sister Men. Yep. And, like, <laughs> so it's, like, the Sister Men are literally deposing their female ruler. Yeah. And silencing her. Like, they definitely just, like, don't care about women. <laughs> it's absolutely insane. I mean, but such a, such a, and I always wonder because I thought the silent sisters were silent by like, by oath. I thought that they took an oath to be silent. I think that technically, yes, they are, but maybe there are some who can't speak either. Um, I can't remember all of what's said about the silent sisters, but I do know that there is like an oath of silence. Um, I have seen, I believe, in, like, fanfic circles, people talking about, like, that this, um, some re- have, like, really interesting thoughts about the, the ways that they would have found alternative ways of communication that, like, Barton just doesn't really explore. But, like, a lot mm-hmm. of that, that might have developed, like, a kind of sign language. Like a sign language, yeah. They'd have to. They'd have to. Um, yeah. And that this might have been a place for women who might have been um, disabled mm-hmm. um, in some way, like, deaf or mm-hmm. mute. Might have found a way to, like, be a part of the Silent Sisters. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that, like, technically most of them just, like, take an oath of silence. This is just, like, a pretty brutal form of torture Yeah, um, for this one particular well. woman. I don't think it's the last time that it happens that, like... Yeah, it's a- mentioned a couple of times of people, women getting their tongues actually removed. Oh, which is just so gross. Right. But yeah, it's real gross. And this is how patriarchy feels about women, is they want them to be literally silent, mm-hmm. unable Seen to speak, rather than have yep. power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, so other, like, we talked about the Dornish racism, which is a lot, a lot of getting shafted. Um, Princess Daria almost has mm-hmm. a lot of misogynistic things happen to her. Like, good job, Aegon, you prevented all of Westeros from from being deeply, deeply misogynist to this woman from a, you know, foreign woman from a different culture. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is interesting. I think when we see Aegon interacting with women, he's, he, him, he himself has not done anything in the text that I would qualify as misogynistic. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is the Targaryen culture. Right. You know, and, and the fact that like, he's got his really equally ruling queens, whatever this maester thinks. He's right. got these, these equal queens with him. Oh, Alice. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe we almost forgot Alice. That's the wedding. So the widow lover. Um, oh, yes, yes, yes. Does a red wedding. A kind of red yes. wedding-ish thing where he, like, appears at the wedding of, like, one of the storm lords to um, a woman named Alice. And, like, kills everyone there. And then, you know, of course, because it's patriarchy. Like, there's definitely gendered violence toward Alice in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And that's the thing we see a lot is... I mean, that we will keep seeing is that, like, this is a society with a lot of violence, but there are also, like, specific gendered forms of violence that, like, Martin is pointing out that, like, this particular kind of violent society has has a special reserved place for gendered violence. Um, Mm -hmm. But in terms of, like, getting shafted by the narrative, which is kind of like, of, like, who does the maester, you know, kind of overlook, is, like, he... I don't know that the maester would have been opposed to Daria being punished somehow. I get the sense that, yeah, like... Yeah, well, 
the maester the maester is a tard stand though so anything yeah. Aegon does he's like this was the correct thing right right so if Aegon wise... had decided to let like the lords of Westeros like treat Daria terribly he would have been like and she deserved it because she right. was Dornish <laughs> right exactly and uh, that's how the Dorn that's what the Dornish get you know exactly no I, I completely agree mm-hmm. I mean I think there's there is one like additional thing we didn't we haven't talked about that I I think we should ask is um Aegon and his sisters, Aegon, Visenya, and Rhaenys, came and, and conquered, but didn't culturally change Westeros? Mm-hmm. I think that comes up more in the next chapter, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we so, have a whole I section mean, I think we're going to talk is about. One of those, this is one of those times that when I was starting to think about it was um, how he treats Daria and the fact that the fact that he rejects what the other lords want to do mm-hmm. and that they do want to do this gendered violence towards her. And he says, nah, nah, we're not doing that. You know, that was him standing up to the patriarchy in a way. Mm-hmm. That was him saying, no, I'm not going to, I'm not rolling with that this time. Right. And he does now and then do that, mm-hmm. which is interesting. It's very interesting as a, as a man in power in the patriarchy. Why is he like that? Right. How does that characterize him? Mm-hmm. You know, or and I think that, gives... that was his wife's lover. <gasps> Sorry. <laughs> Oh my god, wait. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right, I think we've, we, Gretchen, we broke this down to like a 10 page section and we went longer than the last episode. Oh my gosh. We just. <laughs> it's all right. It's our podcast. This is our theme. It's overanalyzing small chunks of text. It's the theme here. Um, all right, so. So yeah, we are... uh, in summary, monarchy is bad. Um,. If, yeah. If this is what peace looks like, uh, this is what a peaceful rule looks like. I sure don't want to see a non-peaceful one. Yes. Uh, um, let me tell you. Let me just tell you guys. If you want to, um, if you want to reach out to us at all, you can comment on the podcast itself. The podcast should be on the various platforms at this point. Mm-hmm. And if you want to reach out to us directly on Tumblr, I'm Cosplay Caroline. On TikTok, I am at Belock B E E L O C K. And someday I'll make an email for this very professional podcast. Mm-hmm. Gretchen, where can people reach out to you? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter um, at G underscore loves books and on Tumblr as G N Jones writer. Um, and yeah, someday we will have someday we will have an email where you can reach and both of us are at the we, same time. Are we uh, are we linking through our good friends at the Fundamentals? We are. Yeah. So yeah, um, the pilot episode went up on the Fundamentals today. The first episode will be going up on Wednesday. Um, I just spaced them out, and then once we have mm-hmm. like a set recording schedule, um, we and release schedule, like they will be regularly released through the Fundamentals.com. We'll be able to find awesome. stuff there. Um, and we will also, in our posts on thefandomentals.com, be including, like, links to um, other things that either Caroline and I have done uh, on the Fandomentals um, or, like, related pieces of literature that if you like House of the Dragon or Fire and Blood, you might be interested in reading. Perfect. Yeah, I could probably just give them my link tree link and I have all my links to everything in there. It's the easiest way mm-hmm. to organize stuff. So let us finally sign off mm-hmm. right. <laughs> from this t- 10 pages that we discussed. Right. It was 12 pages. It was 12 pages. 12, yeah. So, it's got to be accurate. Uh, so, yeah. until next time, friends, remember that 10 years of war counts as peace if you declare yourself the victor at the beginning. Absolutely. Do you want to do a sign off too? Oh, uh, I didn't know we you, were doing You wrote something. two. Come on. You wrote two. I did write two. Yeah. Um, and also, remember that if you declare yourself the son of the drowned god, you might have to walk into the sea with your pockets full of rocks to prove your sincerity. <laughs> 
Ah, oh, Lotus, a true, a true god among us. Oh man. All right, guys, we'll talk to you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. We are recording. We are recording the show. I'm turning off my air conditioning and beginning the long process of suffering in the heat. Yeah, same. I am suffering in the heat and also it is deeply humid because it's currently like stormy outside, which is great. I love I love rain. Like rain is fantastic and super happy. But when it's also like 70 degrees and 89% humidity, I'm like. (sighs) Did you guys have the Canadian smog again? Um, I think that it's kind of eased up a bit. Um, we had the Canadian smog for like two days and my air conditioner is like a wall unit, so I can't use it yep. when the smog is here. So I just suffered yep. for like two days. I couldn't sleep. I was just like, because ah, it was just sweating the whole day. I literally, my, my tactic for when I can't use my air conditioner is I lay on my bed and I spray myself with a water bottle <laughs> to like cool down. <laughs> So all night, like every two hours, I'm waking up to spray myself with a water bottle. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was awful. I hated it. But I have I have pet parakeets oh. and they're very, very sensitive. So they can't, I can't let any of the Canadian smog in because they'll just drop. So I can't do any air conditioning. They would be in the like parakeet, and, parakeet of your coal mine apartment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty. With I had gosh. a couple of days where I couldn't because I have a window unit. Um, mm-hmm. so like it's literally just would be pumping in air from outside. Yeah. And it was at like I, I, almost 200 out here. Like the air quality was so high and I'm already kind of mm-hmm. sensitive, definitely sensitive to air quality because like I was like waking up with a headache and my throat was really mm-hmm. sore and like slightly nauseous. The funniest part for me has been my cat, um, who is an old lady, but mostly doesn't sound like it. Like she's 13 has been, like, meowing like she's an old lady. And I was like, oh, oh no, is it the air quality? Because she'll be like, just, like, super yeah. scratchy. And I was like, oh, baby, I'm sorry. My my throat got sore from it. I One day I didn't realize it was happening. And I came to take a nap in here in my bedroom. And I closed the door and I turned the air on. And I, I poisoned myself for an hour. <laughs> and, I, and I woke up and I'm like, I feel terrible. And I was like... Why do I feel so terrible? And then I turn my computer on. It's like, air quality index, very bad. Don't breathe it. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> great. Oops. <laughs> Whoops. Oh, no, I was breathing I was just, it. Oh, no. I poisoned myself. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>